Welcome to the US Sports Podcast with me, Max Whittle. Today we are joined by Lang Whitaker of NBA.com, who is at the heart of the Celtics Cavaliers series, which is currently 2-1 to the Cavaliers after a surprising and amazing and scintillating comeback by the Celtics in Game 3 in Cleveland without Isaiah Thomas. If you want to get in touch with the show, I'm at Max underscore Whittle on Twitter. Later, I will give my thoughts on the Warriors-Spurs series, which is currently 3-0 with Game 4 coming up tonight. But it's time for our guest, Lang Whitaker of NBA.com. Joining us now live from New York is Lang Whitaker of NBA.com. He's been covering the Boston Celtics Cleveland Cavaliers series so far. Lang, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. I'm a little surprised that we're that uh, Boston was able to pull that game out last night, Game Three. But uh, otherwise, I'm doing pretty well. It would be normal to go dive straight into Game 3 and that amazing comeback by the Celtics, but I just want to start with Game 2 because you were in Boston for the first two games of this series and what we saw was a Cavaliers beatdown, really. They were so good. Uh, the, the, the numbers are crazy. 34-5 and five in the East playoffs the last three seasons. Dating back to the finals, they had won 13 straight playoff games. Uh, now, obviously, we know they've lost one, but Game, game 2 was just... Crazy the way they destroyed Boston, the halftime lead, the way they were playing, the, everything on defense was in sync. They were getting to the basket. They opened up the three as well. Did you see any belief in Boston uh, when you went to the locker room after that game? No, um, and you know, I mean, I think it, in the aftermath of that game, game two, you know, there was all this talk all of a sudden of Isaiah now being out for the rest of the series. So. Um, it was sort of like you know the the, the poor get poor. You, you think they're you know they, at one point they were down fifty points in game two, which is just ridiculous. And then you find out oh the guy who scores all our points is going to be able to play in game three. Um, I think if you look at the numbers pretty deeply, there you know there might have been a little reason to hope uh, for Boston in that when they were uh, when they had Isaiah Thomas on the court this season, uh, they were a worse defensive team than when he was not on the court. But that being said, they weren't a very good offensive team without him, um, and they they didn't have that one guy who can make shots. And when off when uh, you know when a half court offense breaks down, they didn't have the guy who could create on their own without Isaiah. So um, I, I think after that game too, it just kind of felt like the, the general sense was that this series was over. It kind of felt that way on both sides, honestly. Yeah. In yeah, the they... Cleveland locker room, they, those guys felt pretty comfortable with with I think you know the way that their position after two games also. Who did you speak to? You mentioned that they lost by 44. That's the biggest loss by a one seed in playoff history. Who did you speak to on the Celtics after game two? Actually, I didn't I, I didn't speak to anybody. I mean, I saw Al Horford in the hallway and nodded at him. I, I was, uh, my job that night was to write the Cavs side of things. So um, and we had kind of decided that before the game two. Uh, one of my colleagues, Sean Powell, was in Boston also. So when the game kind of got going, and it, that second quarter, I think it was a 41-13 to 13, um Cleveland's advantage. So once that happened, we kind of said, all right, I'll, I'll do the uh, Cavs side of things. Sean was going to write something bigger picture about the Eastern Conference and Boston losing that game. So I, I kind of went in and worked the, the Cleveland locker room and uh, was in there uh, for the after the game. Now, in that game, you're watching it back, ball movement, the swagger from the Cavs, knocking down threes. Because in, in game one, James came out and was attacking the hole, was getting to the basket yeah. whenever he wanted. But in game two, I, I don't think, even with this Warriors version with Durant, I don't think I've seen a performance so dominant. Everything looks so easy. And it was their biggest win in franchise history. 
what you just said you covered the Cavaliers side of things. So in from that respect, did, were they a little surprised how easy it was? Yeah, um, I, I think they were. They were really surprised. I mean, uh, they they're, they have a certain confidence. I don't want to. I don't want to make them sound like they knew that they were going to win. Um, they were confident about it, and they felt pretty. I think you know they've done this for a long time. This group's been together for a while. Um, after game two, I, I talked to Cal Corver for a while, um, and I asked him, you know, I mean, the, the Cavs lost 23 of their last 46 games in the regular season. Um, they lost seven of their last 11 games heading into the playoffs, and then all of a sudden they won nine in a row heading into that game. Um, and so I asked Corver, I was like, you know, what, what changed? What's the difference? And his, his quick answer was LeBron. <laughs> He said, you know, I've, I've never seen him play like this. He's playing at a different level than anyone has seen. Um, and I, I think, you know, when you have that guy playing like that, for the other guys, for Kyle Korver, for J.R. Smith, for Mon Shumpert, the other guys, I mean, their job is a lot easier. All of a sudden, they just have to kind of stand in spaces and, and knock down open jump shots. And they had the chance to do that um, when LeBron's playing the way he's playing. Where are you with the Michael Jordan comparison? I mean, it sounds as if we're talking like this right now. It's like the Cavs are 3-0 up. We're going to get into game three and it's become a series. But LeBron has played so well in this postseason. He's in his 14th season and he doesn't look like he's slowing down. Where are you with the Michael Jordan comparison conversation? Uh, Actually, I I texted with a a lot of people about it over the the last couple of days because when I came back from Boston... um, this weekend on, uh, I don't even know what day today is. Today's t- Monday. <laughs> you know, when I came back <laughs> on uh, Saturday from Boston, uh, I was texting with a few people about that. Because um, I, you know, I mean, I, I kind of grew up um, when Jordan was in his prime, uh, you know, in the 80s. Uh, I was a kid and I watched a lot of those games, saw him play. Again. I grew up in Atlanta, so I saw him play the Hawks a couple times and um, watched a lot of those finals on TV and everything. I, If you're just comparing you know, sort of player to player. I don't know what LeBron James does that Michael Jordan couldn't do. Um, and I think LeBron does some things better than Jordan did, um, rebounding, passing. Um, you know, Jordan might have been better on the perimeter defensively cause, just because LeBron's size. At the same token, LeBron might be better in the post than Jordan was defensively. Um, it's just sort of you're comparing apples to oranges in a way, though, because of the eras and because of the way basketball is played now. You know, there's no no hand-checking now. So if Jordan and his prime played in today's game, what would it be like, um, you know? So it, it's sort of hard and maybe impossible to compare the two because you're looking at two totally different things. That being said, uh, I, I think when you have that conversation about the greatest NBA players of all time, um, to me, Michael Jordan has always been number one at the top of the list, but I think LeBron is moving up that list. The one, the one thing that I think is going to be sort of impossible for anyone to overcome uh, until someone else comes along is that Jordan didn't lose a finals. You know, he was 6-0 and in the finals, and LeBron's lost a, a couple of finals now. So that that's the one thing that LeBron I don't think will ever be able to, to sort of um, overcome. Yeah, I don't think... Argument. I don't think we need to even have to have the conversation because you, you have to, for one thing, appreciate what you're seeing with James. And, and everyone mentions the, the 6 and oath by Jordan. I don't think we've ever seen a better basketball player than LeBron James. I, mean, I think it sounds dumb when Charles Barkley says that James will never get hit, crack his top five. Because if James wins another two titles and he knocks down this Durant team, 
then and I think the one sticking point that you do hear a lot though of James and it's it's kind of leads us into the game three nicely is he didn't score for the final 16 and a half minutes in game yeah. three and these games stick out a little like the Dallas finals in 2011 he scored 11 points um, that's the fewest he's had in 107 career home playoff games so we definitely pile on and we always ignore the greatness when James has a bad game but why does he struggle in this particular way well, I mean, that also would seem, I think it's probably partly the law of averages. He'd had, before that game, what, 12 or 13 in a row where he, no, I'm sorry, eight in a row where he'd had at least 30 points, um, which tied him with Michael Jordan for the most in a row to have at least that many points. Um, I, you know, I, there was also, just today on Twitter, some people were talking about some of the, the bad games Michael Jordan had in the finals. And there was one game where he had only attempted six shots. Um, you know, th- there's just times, I think, where, just from the sheer mass of games that they play, you're, you're going to have a bad game every now and then. And, and maybe it's, you know, like when, when the um, Cavs got eliminated by Boston before LeBron left and went to Miami and he had that bad game six in Boston. Or, um, you know, there, there's just a couple through the years that kind of stick out. And maybe they stick out because he's been so great the rest of the time. But, you know, it, it's when you look at it in comparison uh, with this other backdrop of, of his excellence through the years all of a sudden you see this and you're like, oh, well, okay, that makes sense now why it doesn't work. So, um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, we also, I think it's just the culture we live in. It's the, you know, the Twitter hot take society where we're always um, picking things apart and looking for, <laughs> looking for flaws. And, uh, you know, when, when a guy is as incredible as LeBron has been throughout these playoffs, um, you know, I, I mean, I think back to the first round against Indiana, they, they came back 26 points and a half and won a game. Um, you know, those kind of things don't happen regularly. And, and really for his first, what, uh, 10 games in the playoffs, he was he was incredible. He had a bad game. So, um, you know, we'll see what happens in the next one. Absolutely. Um, I think Boston fans at this point are probably tearing their hair out saying, why aren't you crediting us for beating the Cavs? So, you know, the Celtics are down 18 in the first half at, at one point, 77-56 down halfway through the third, and then they go on a 55-31 to 31 run to end the game. What happened in your mind watching that game? It reminded me a lot of the, the, the game the Cavs had like the last two weeks of the season against the Hawks where they blew a 26-point lead in the, second, in the fourth quarter, I believe. Um, you know, the, everything kind of stopped offensively for them, um, defensively. I thought it was interesting at, at halftime, um, David Aldridge said on TNT that as they were, as he spoke to Brad Stevens leaving the court, Brad Stevens said something about the law of averages, and and all the the broadcast crew kind of laughed about it. But it turns out he was right. You know, the, the Cavs made so many shots at the beginning of the game, and then it sort of normalized in that second half, and the reverse happened for Boston, and all of a sudden they couldn't miss a shot, and uh, they were knocking down all those threes, and they looked awesome down the stretch. Uh, I think it was a little bit of all of that, and then the you know the Cavs. I think it was just that night. You know, it just happens. Every once in a while, nothing works, um, and everything falls apart. And uh, if it doesn't happen like that, uh, I mean, I think there's a reason we've never seen a team sweep all the way through a championship uh, because it, it's it's you're going to run into a game every once in a while where things fall apart. And uh, I think that's really what happened to the Cavs. That uh, you know, someone pointed out Marcus Smart. I think he had the, the career high uh, last night. He had 19 um, points. Yeah, so things like that happen, um, and it happened to them last night. Yeah, you mentioned Smart, and Jonas Jerebko had a good game, 10 points, plus-minus yep. 22. Al Horford 
that was the first time he beat James in a playoff game. He was tormented at Atlanta as well. Um, yeah. All these players that have an effect, and you have no Thomas, of course, too. Avery Bradley hits the game winner. Can you try and explain or evaluate exactly how Brad Stevens will draw up a play? Because you, you heard so many players after this win talk about Stevens and how he, how he draws plays up after a timeout. Yeah, you know, that, that play that they ran at the end of the game, I thought was really interesting. It, well, first of all, you know, normally in that situation, Isaiah Thomas is going to be the focus of, uh, of your team. And I, and I thought it was interesting that without him there, in some ways it makes it a lot tougher for, for Cleveland because you don't know who's going to take that shot. Um, you know, if, if Isaiah's on the team, he might not take that shot, but he's at least going to be involved in that play and you can kind of game plan for that. Um, you know, he might set the screen or be a decoy, but you know they're going to use him in some way. But without him there, um, I was kind of—I wasn't really sure who was going to get that shot at the end of the game. Uh, I thought maybe Al Horford takes that shot, or, or even Marcus Smart, the way he was shooting the ball. But um, secondly, that play they ran—you um, know, it's a out of timeout play and after timeout ATO, as coaches and players call that—it um, was such a cool play because it, it had Jay Crowder and. Avery Bradley sort of screening for one another and then Jay Crowder sprinted through the paint and he ended up drawing two defenders with him and, and J.R. Smith just totally got lost on the play and Avery Bradley's wide open. Um, and it looked like such a neat play. And then someone on Reddit, I, I tweeted that this morning, put together a little video clip of the Celtics. They ran that play five or six times during the season at the end of games when they needed a big basket. So, you know, a coach like Brad Stevens has an arsenal of plays like that, of you know, maybe 30 or 40 or 50 plays that somewhere tucked away in his mind or in a file cabinet somewhere in his office that he can go to and pull out when they need a, a bucket or when they need to create some sort of play uh, that he can go to. Yeah, and if they've if they only run that five or six times during the season, obviously a lot harder to scheme for and, and, and pick out if yeah. you the Cavs. Um, Avery Bradley, I think he outplayed Jimmy Butler in round one came back from 2-0 down. He had to guard John Wall in the second round, and now he's guarding Kyrie Irving. <laughs> he has the 20 points in Game 3, hits the game winner. Do you, and making him sound like one of the best players of all time here, but who in the league, would, would Boston give, give him up for anyone in the league right now? Because they're going to be involved with a lot of trade rumors uh, going forward now. Yeah, they're getting to the point where they're going to have to do something because, because you know, they, they've, they have so many young players that all those contracts are going to be coming up eventually, and they got to figure out kind of who, who they're going to build with going forward. I think Bradley's on a pretty friendly contract. You know, he's not one of the higher-paid players in the league. Um, he's always been a defense-first guy and, you know, maybe first or second-team all-defense in the NBA, not really known for his offense. Um, he's a pretty good uh, jump shooter. Uh, he can create off the dribble. I was thinking about that, that fast break last night where he went around his back and got a bucket. Um, I think he's really shown what he can do. He, he got injured in that. I was covering that Boston Washington series too. And he, he had, he, he hurt both of his hips at some point in that series and mm. was sort of banged up a little bit, kept playing. But, um, so he was kind of hurt a little bit, but he looks like he's kind of coming back. And, um, you know, I don't know if he's a guy who's 82 games a year is going to be able to give you 25 points a game, but, um, on some nights when he gets hot, he's the kind of guy who I think you can rely on. And, and look, the Celtics did. They asked him to make that last shot, and he came through. Why were we starting to hear about trade rumors with Isaiah Thomas after they lost the first two games of this series? Um, because of the contract thing. I mean, look, he, he's got next summer, he'll be a free agent. And uh, the Celtics, I think to keep him, they, they would have to pay him about $180 million. Um, 
and like we said, you know, they're better defensively without him on the court because of the size thing. Teams kind of pick on him. Um, he's going to be 29, I believe, 28, 29 years old when that contract comes up, which means by the end of the contract, he'd be 34, 35. And, you know, you don't know about durability questions with a guy like his size. Um, at the same time, um, you know, people have sort of discounted him his entire career. He was the last pick in the NBA draft, and a couple of teams gave up on him. And once he finally got a chance in Boston, you know, he's a second-team All-NBA player. Um, and so they got to make a decision, and, and they have to decide if they want to keep him and is he going to be the, the kind of the cornerstone of this franchise going forward, or, you know, they've got the number one pick in the draft, and, and you know, there's an element of cost certainty there. You can get a rookie He's going to make six, seven million dollars a year for the next five, four years, five years, um, and maybe that's the guy you want to build around. I think you know the other thing that they've got to reckon with. This has got a every team in the Eastern Conference is going to have to figure out what they're going to do about this. At the top of the conference is LeBron and the Celtics. I mean the Cavs, and you know what can Boston do in the next year that's going to make them good enough to beat Cleveland in a seven-game series? And maybe there's not an answer to that. Maybe. Maybe the real question there is, you know, do we just kind of punt the next few years and, and try to get good enough to be a contender in 2020 when LeBron's on the way down, um, you know? But maybe we, we're just going to wait. I don't know the answer, but it's something Boston's going to have to figure out and, and everyone else in the East has got to figure out also. I think the answer there is you've got to do a Zaza Pachulia. I think Kelly Linick is the perfect person who could just box out a little bit too close to, uh, not box out, close out a little bit too close to the shooter. That's the only thing I can see with the Eastern Conference. If James is healthy and he's playing like this, you could add Jimmy Butler, you could add Paul George, you could add Gordon Hayward. I, I still don't think you're close. Um, I'm interested. Do you have an, an all-NBA vote? I do. So, I mean, I know you're a media member, but are you comfortable with the media voting for essentially the future salaries and whereabouts of someone like Paul George, which has happened just now? Yeah, I mean, it's not uh, that part of the job isn't my decision. You know, the players wanted that. The owners wanted that. uh, And that was collectively bargained into the way it works. Uh, You know, I kind of look at it like I got a a ballot in the mail. They asked me my opinion and I gave them my opinion and the repercussions. that's that's not for me to decide. Um, you know, um, I, I I don't know. Um, I don't I don't I don't think I'm supposed to talk about my vote until or how I voted until all the 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 award show airs, and then they're going to release how everybody voted. Um, but um, you know, I'm, I don't I'm okay with it. That's if they everyone else agreed on it, um, and that's the way it works out. So I think my biggest problem here is not the media as such as it is. Go, um, DeAndre Jordan and Rudy Gobert are not top 15 players in the league and because you have to fill out a centre that's where my problem is I think we need to take all positions away not just guards and forwards I think we need to take all positions away and you just vote for the best 15 players because that might have cost Haywood and George this season I think well the other problem there is also like so what position do you put Draymond Green um, you know he, he he doesn't start at centre for the Golden State Warriors but He's arguably at his best when he's playing the center position for the Golden State Warriors. So, mm. um, you know, it's—I it, don't know. You know, the All-Star balloting went away from having a center the last few years um, to where you pick two guards and three front court players. So I guess it's back court, front court. Uh, you know, maybe that's the way this thing ends up going eventually too. I don't know, but um, but uh, you know, it's also 
for whatever, 70 years, they've had an all-NBA team with uh, two guards, two forwards, and a center. So I don't, I don't know if they'll go away from that right now. I heard Mark Cuban openly admitting on the Dan Patrick show that Dallas deliberately tanked after they were officially out of the playoff chase this season. Uh, what, what should a team's mindset be in that situation, do you think? Um, I mean, there's a certain uh, sort of realism you got, or reality that you have to confront where, um, you know, when you're out of the playoff chase, What's the goal? What 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 are you going to do? Are you going to uh, try to win games um, and hurt your possible lottery standing, or are you going to try to uh, develop younger players? And I think there's a difference also between tanking, you know, intentionally losing games, and playing guys who might not be as good as some of your other players, but next year you might want them to be able to play a larger role. So you know maybe. Maybe you lose games in the process of doing that, but but it does have some sort of franchise or institutional benefit going forward. Um, you know, if you're playing a, a rookie point guard who um, next year might be the guy who who's your main backup, you want to know exactly what you can get out of him, and you're willing to have a couple of weeks where you're going to live with those mistakes, and and maybe you'll lose some games in the process. Um, I, I kind of think that's more of what uh, if you're trying to quote-unquote tank that's the way to do it instead of just you know um and i can't really think of teams that are just running guys out there and saying don't make shots we want to lose right you know if you're gonna yeah if you're gonna lose you're gonna you want to have some sort of benefit from it either a short term or long term and I kind of think that's the way to go about it. And Cuban even said himself that we didn't ask the guys to to lose the young. We just played the youngsters, yeah. and they're just not at the right level to compete every time out. They're gonna they're gonna put their heart on the floor. They're gonna play as well as they can, but ultimately they're not good enough to win a lot of games. That's that's what he said, and I I I like the honesty because a lot of coaches and front offices will dodge that question. Um, you said you're going to be in Boston for Game Five. There will be a Game Five, surprisingly. Is there any way this is a series going forward? Yeah, I don't think so. Um, at the same time, I thought it was going to be a sweep before the game last night, and uh, I was wrong about that. So, um, don't quote me on that. But, uh, I, I, you know, the one thing Boston, I think, has going for them without Isaiah Thomas is that offensively you don't really know where their offense is going to come from, and that, as a, for the Cavaliers, makes it a lot harder for them to sort of game plan for, for Boston. Um, you know, when, when all five guys are a threat, it's a lot more difficult than if one guy's a threat. So they've got a, uh, they've, the one thing I don't know how Boston solves is, is where they're going to get their points from. Um, you know, they had, they had some career nights last night from a couple of guys, from Marcus Smart, from some other players. So they're going to have to have that again. And I don't know if that happens again. I also think, Cleveland probably thought we're going home. They're going to be without Isaiah. We we can kind of win this thing and and uh, coast into the NBA Finals. And now they find out we can't do that. So you know maybe the they they woke up the bear a little bit and we're going to see a uh, motivated Cavs team um, in these next few games here. Last couple of questions for you, Lang. The Celtics got the number one pick in the lottery. It's not been a bad week, really, if you if you put it all together. Danny Ainge, for some some yeah. somehow in 2013, he managed to pull off that trade with Pierce and Garnett. Do you think they're going to trade the pick? Do you think they're going to draft Markel Fultz? What's the future? And, and you've got to obviously bring in Thomas with all of that as well. Yeah, there's a lot to figure out, and and you know they've got a they'll have Brooklyn's first round pick next year also, which might be another lottery pick. Um, so 
you know, they've got to figure out how, how they want to approach this. And again, it's sort of a larger organizational decision. Uh, you know, are, are we going to try and compete right now? Do we trade this pick um, and try to bring in a Paul George or a Jimmy Butler and, and be great right now? Or do we do something else and try to figure out a way um, to develop these younger guys? Um, so I, I don't know what their answer is. Um, you know, it, it's really Danny Ainge and, and the, the ownership to, to figure out what are we going to do here? Um, and, and, you know, maybe the best answer is to, to draft young guys and, and keep developing them. They've shown an ability to not only develop these young guys, but win games while they're developing guys, which is tough to do. So uh, I, I, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what they're going to do. My guess would be, you know, you, you draft that younger guy and again, you get the cost certainty of a rookie scale contract. Um, it's not a year where there's like a clear cut number one, as far as I know, like to be honest, I haven't watched college basketball at all this year. And I'm just now starting to kind of study up on these guys. So I don't know the differences between Alonzo ball and a Markel Fultz and uh, Josh Jackson and all these other guys. Um, but from what I understand, you know, there, there's a lot of good players and good options. And um, You know, the other thing that I, I haven't really heard thrown around a lot, but maybe is a good option is maybe they move back. You know, you can trade down if there's a guy they really like, um, and, you know, you pick up more assets. The, the one thing we've, we've, we know that they're willing to do is, is to accumulate assets. They, they've done an incredible job of that. And um, so I, I would get, if you're going to figure out what they're going to do next, you, you look at what they've done in the past. At some point they have to turn that corner and they have to start actually having building blocks going forward. But, um, you know, maybe it's, maybe now is not the time for that yet. Yeah, it just has to be quite soon, though, right? I don't think they can get any younger because Horford's going to be yeah. 31 or so. Thomas is approaching 29. At some point, you have to start thinking, are we going to challenge James or are we going to build for the future with that pick? Um, have you ever spent $495 on a basketball shoe? No. Um, but I, I'm looking forward to buying several pairs of the big baller brand uh, <laughs> <laughs> once they're available. Yeah, I bet the uh, the kids are going to be uh, demanding those sometime soon. Um Last question, Lang, for you is, have you, were you at all intrigued by watching a final start with both teams, Cavs and Warriors, 12-0, and 0, or are you concerned with a lot of my friends, a lot of NBA fans, a lot of the media, that the playoffs have been pretty, pretty bad this season? I wasn't that concerned. I mean, yes, there have been some, some bad games. Um, you know, I was at that game six between the Wizards and the Celtics in Washington when John Wall hit the long three to win it. Um, there was, you know, uh, Avery Bradley last night. There, there have been some good games also. Um, I, I just think it's, you know, it's a pendulum. It goes back and forth. And you're going to get good games. You're going to get bad games. Um, maybe you get more of one, less of the other for the time being. Um, again, you know, it's the Twitter internet culture, and that's what we do. We, we all pile on and pick it apart. But I, I, I wasn't really that concerned. And I think, um, you know, if this keeps going, um, we're going to keep seeing some uh, – uh, Eventually, it's going to kind of even out, and we'll, and we'll see some more great finishes. Well, thanks for joining us, Lang. I hope you enjoy Game 5, and maybe we'll have a series. Maybe it'll be 2-2 at that point. So thanks for joining the podcast. <laughs> I appreciate it, Max. A couple of things on the Golden State-San Antonio series. We are a few hours away, as I record this, from Game 4. The Warriors going for a sweep. 11-0 to start the postseason. That means they've tied the 1989 Lakers and the 2001 Lakers for the best ever start in the postseason. I wanted to ask you first of all, and tweet me in at Max underscore Whittle if you have any thoughts on this. What did game one, the portion with Kawhi Leonard, 
tell you about the Warriors. We just talked about the Cleveland series and how the Cavaliers are sometimes prone to giving up big leads, LeBron James going hiding, or it doesn't look like he's giving a lot of effort. I see a Golden State team that can come out the blocks a little bit slow, especially after rest. You've seen it in the last couple of postseasons now, where they just don't start well. Greg Povich schemed so well, excellently, against this team. They pressured. Jonathan Simmons was guarding Stephen Curry well. LaMarcus Aldridge was playing aggressively. Kawhi Leonard was seemingly doing what he wanted. And then Zaza Pachulia stood on his ankle, and the series changed from there. Greg Povich said after Game 1, and he said a lot before Game 2, as we know, but after Game 1 he said it's pretty cool playing like that against Golden State. That says a lot because Popovich does not often say what he's thinking positively about his team. He then compared the Petulia step on Kawhi as manslaughter. Okay, that's a different story entirely. But San Antonio led by 23 points with just under eight minutes left in the third quarter. And then we lose Kawhi. We go into game two. It was pretty much 36 minutes of garbage time. Fourth biggest conference final winning margin in game two. The defense, the rhythm, the pace of the San Antonio Spurs just wasn't there after Kawhi went down. And really, I I see the important part of this is the defense because San Antonio switch on pretty much everything. When they were guarding in game one, that was their tactic to begin with. And Golden State, they always get the shot they want in the end. If you see how they flip screens and they set constant picks, if the ball goes inside to the big man, the guards will screen for each other. They'll do little things and move off the ball. And if if you look at all the screens they're setting off the ball, on the ball, whatever it might be on the pick and roll eventually they're going to catch you out. And San Antonio, with Kawhi, they just have that seamless communication that the Warriors have a lot of the time. And they just, they've lost it. It's such a big loss. And it's really caused for his MVP case how badly they've been or how much they've been dominated by the Warriors since Kawhi went down. I mentioned the 11-0 start. They've outscored the Spurs after Kawhi's gone down up to the start of Game 4 by 73 points. He's likely out again for Game 4. Pop has said that. And you look you look at R.C. Buford and Popovich, they will not take the short term for the long term. They will rest Kawhi. This series is all but over. So why would they bring Leonard back and risk further injury? I think we overestimated how smart Petulia is, though, to think that he will try and get under Kawhi Leonard and injure him like that. Aldridge has been double teamed at the elbow. He's been unable to hit those open pick and roll shots that he's usually automatic at. Something's not right there. And Popovich has said in a few of his post-game press conferences that Aldridge has to do more. Um, And it's clearly affecting him. He hasn't been up to it in this postseason. Patty Mills has been shut down. He had five points in the first two games. Clay Thompson hasn't got it going in this series, but he's shut Mills down. I said before this series began just after Parker went down in the previous series against the Rockets, that Mills was an advantage to them to have Parker go out because of his scoring. Of course, you'd rather have Parker there as well. But Mills is a better shooter. He can score the ball. It just goes to show you that some bench players look a lot more comfortable coming off the bench and they're more effective in those spot minutes. But he's been shut down. The only guys bringing it in this series, really, Jonathan Simmons, a former D-leaguer, and Manny Ginobili, who is 40 years of age very, very soon. Ginobili, we've seen vintage Ginobili in this series. He's been driving by, doing the Euro step. You know he's going left, but he still gets to the bucket. He's shot the three well. Simmons, meanwhile, the energy he brings, he's now starting. He started from game two onwards. The story this guy's on, junior college, couple of universities, playing the D-League, paying $150 to get onto that Spurs D-League team. Amazing, an incredible 
heart and work ethic. He attacks the basket. He attacks you on defense. He was upsetting Curry with some of his screens and some of his defending. But that's what you've got to do to these superstars. Get in their head. And every spur has to bring it like Simmons does. That's what Povich demands. That's what he loves to see in his players. And then for the Warriors, Durant in game three in the third quarter, he took over. And it doesn't feel like he's done much this postseason. And they have that weapon. That's the big difference between this team last year and this year. You saw how the Cavs beat up Curry last season in the finals. They got under his skin. They attacked him in the pick and roll. That meant that LeBron usually would be on the attacking Curry. Curry would be switched on to LeBron James or Kyrie Irving. And they would go at him. And they wore him down. Guess what? You have Durant next to Curry. And he's also a defender. A very long defender. And Jeff Van Gundy... In game three, Kevin Durant is crossing over at the top of the three-point line and shooting the three. And Jeff Van Gundy just says, that's a seven-footer right there. And it suddenly occurred to me, this is crazy. I mean, we talk about James and the Michael Jordan comparisons. Kevin Durant is going to go down as one of the best offensive players we've seen. End of story. But 3 nothing up against the Spurs. It looks like they're going to reach their third straight NBA Finals. I still think the Warriors are favourites. I don't think we should overreact too much to the Cavaliers' loss against the Celtics. They're going to go through pretty fa- fairly straightforwardly. If they can, if LeBron can have half a decent game, they're going through for the third time to face each other. And while we're talking about LeBron James, before I wrap up the podcast, can we just talk about Game 1? Because after the, after the loss against the Celtics last night, everyone says, look, we hold James to higher standards. He can't have a game like this. He is human. Look at game one. Attack the rim early. Didn't allow the rust to become a factor. He wasn't settling for shots. The Celtics switched him on everything. And I don't know why, because they ended up with Alinek and Horford guarding him too much. Far too much. But he got those matchups. He backed down on Marcus Smart. He got to the basket. He scored 26 points in the, in the paint. Stevens said he might have to double team him. And he also affects shots on the defensive end. His block on Avery Bradley in game two, he had a couple. One with his left hand, the chase down block that was reminiscent of the finals. He is doing everything. He's shooting a better percentage from three, from the free throw line. And in game two, you saw the transition. Because he got so easily to the basket in game one, the bigs, when they were put on him, they started to guard him off a little, a couple steps behind. And James would just tease them, tease them, and pull up for a jumper. And he'd nail it. Because... He's put that doubt into their minds. What's he going to do? Even if he drives on me and he doesn't shoot, he's going to find an open three-point shooter. The Cavs look scary. They really do. I think this is going to be a very fun NBA Finals and one that we deserve. Unless the Celtics can make this a series, it's going to be uh, another pretty straightforward time. But thanks to my guest today, NBA.com's Lang Whitaker. You can follow him at Lang Whitaker, W-H-I-T-A-K-E-R on Twitter. He's also appearing on NBA TV. Um, he is going to be in Boston for Game 5. So let's hope for Lang that it's 2-2. And for all the rest of us, because we want to see a, we want to see a competitive series. Although, you know, let's be honest. <laughs> LeBron James, he's not going to have another one of those games, is he? Tweet me at Max underscore Whittle. If you like what you've heard, please go on to iTunes and give the show a review. The US Sports Podcast with Max Whittle. You can also listen to archived episodes of the show. I have been lucky enough to have in the, in the past couple of weeks. Mike Breen, who you've been hearing the Warriors Spurs calls on ESPN. Peter King of the MMQB, the great NFL writer. Dikembe Mutombo, the all-time leader in the NBA for blocks. And my regular NBA guests, Dennis Seidt and Rafael Geller. We talk hoops for a good hour or two. So check those out. Thanks for listening and enjoy Warriors Spurs. Enjoy Celtics Cavs. And enjoy, you know, the baseball season in May. Is it relevant? We'll get onto it soon enough. 
Thanks for listening. Enjoy the games. 